Hi, my name is Caroline, and I'm so glad that you're joining us on our Grace Journey podcast. At Grace Church, we are all about knowing God and reflecting His way. I hope this sermon will do just that by feeding your mind with the knowledge of God and engaging your heart to live a life reflecting His grace and truth. A few years ago, I went back to Kenya for a good friend's wedding. I arrived several days before the wedding ceremony itself, but in some ways, I actually got there in the middle of things. You see, in a Kenyan wedding, there are numerous traditional events in the months leading up to the actual ceremony. It all starts with the plans to get married. In contemporary Kenya, especially in the cities, the groom will follow more Western traditions of getting down on one knee, proposing with a ring, all of that. But that doesn't mean he neglects the traditions, especially the tradition of a bride price. Now, when I say bride price or dowry, you might kind of flinch or twitch a little bit. It might make you feel uncomfortable. To Americans, often, the idea of a bride price sounds like just buying and selling women. It sounds unlovely and unloving, maybe even dehumanizing for the bride. But that's just from the outside. Once you understand the cultural perspective on it, it takes on a whole new, very rich meaning. The idea is the bride is beyond precious to her family, and the groom has to not only demonstrate that he can take care of her financially, but also show that he recognizes her incredible worth. He is giving up something valuable, livestock and money, for something even more valuable, his bride. In fact, settling on a bride price that is far more than the groom can ever actually pay is a good way to indicate the bride's surpassing value, as well as create a permanent connection between the bride and her family even after she moves out of her parents' house. Once you understand the tradition of the bride price, the meaning behind it, it shifts from looking like a murky, possibly evil transaction, money and livestock in exchange for a wife, to a beautiful way of valuing a bride and connecting two families forever. That's not to say the system is never abused. Unfortunately, sometimes it is. But the idea of it is actually quite beautiful. Well, just like traditions in other cultures can look kind of bizarre to us from the outside, sometimes events in the Bible may seem strange when we read about them. What we have to remember is that the events in the Bible also took place in a different culture. If we want to understand them, especially stories that seem really confusing to us, it's important to understand the culture in which they took place. The events of our gospel reading fall into that category. Kind of bizarre seeming. Why are Jesus' parents bringing him to the temple as an infant? Why are they bringing two young pigeons? What is happening here? In order to understand this story, we have to understand some of the cultural background that's at play here. Mary and Joseph did this because they were keeping an Old Testament practice and law. You see, the Old Testament talks a lot about something called first fruits. 
the people were called to bring their first fruits as an offering to the Lord. Why? Well, practically speaking, the offerings fed the priests and the Levites. Just like in Kenya, practically speaking, the bride price demonstrates that the groom can afford to get married and take care of the bride. But just like in the case of a bride price, there was so much more to this practice than meets our modern eye. The first fruits were the early part of the harvest and the best of the harvest. Offering them to the Lord was like getting your first paycheck and giving the whole thing to God. The first fruits represented not only the people's gratitude to God for their crops, but also their acknowledgement that everything they had was from God, and their trust that he would continue to provide. So they could be free to give him the first of what they had gathered without fear for the rest of the harvest. In a sense, they were surrendering something good, something really good, for something better. They were giving up food and security to worship God and place their trust in him. But this practice of offering first fruits was not limited just to grain, veggies, fruit. It extended to animals as well. Every firstborn male was understood to belong to the Lord, a sign that all life, all wealth, all blessings were from God. The firstborn male of clean animals were brought to the temple and sacrificed to God, and then the priests and Levites ate them. But for animals that were ceremonially unclean, And for humans, neither of which were used for sacrifices, the owners or parents would bring the animal or the child and they would pay a fine or offer an alternative sacrifice to redeem them back. Symbolically, they were surrendering something to God in place of the sacrifice that God was due in the firstborn male. Are you following so far? I know this is a lot of background. Let's pull it back to today's story. So Mary and Joseph are bringing baby Jesus to the temple as part of this practice. This is what they're doing. They're bringing him in obedience to the law. And they're having him circumcised, and they're offering a sacrifice in place of Jesus to redeem him back, since he's Mary's firstborn son. In a way, it's incredibly ironic when you think about it. They're bringing God himself to his own temple, recognizing that their baby, who is also God, Uh, is from God and belongs to God and offering a sacrifice to God to redeem God back. They're symbolically redeeming their son, who's actually the son of God, and has come to redeem them, not only them, but all of humanity. Kind of makes my head spin when I think about it. But it's something more than just a crazy coincidence. It's an incredible symbol. This offering, this sacrifice, which the law requires them to give, as a sign of their gratitude for God's generosity, becomes an even greater symbol of that same generosity. As a poor couple who can't afford a lamb, they offer two pigeons. It doesn't sound like much, but they couldn't even afford a lamb. It was a sacrifice for them. So they offer two small birds in exchange for the lamb of God. The generosity of God is incredible. God has not only given them everything they have, but he's given them himself in the person of Jesus. The redeemer of the world, the son of God, is being ceremonially redeemed to go from being owed to God as the firstborn son of his human mother 
to belonging to his human family. This is a symbol of the fullness with which Jesus became human, the fullness with which he surrendered to the Father's will, the fullness with which he identified with his people and became one of us so that he could redeem us and reconcile us to the Father. It's incredible. In a sense, this is the fullness and the fulfillment of everything God has given his people. He not only gave humanity all of creation, he not only provided his people with rain and crops and the ability to create and maintain life, but he ultimately gave himself completely to save us. And what are Mary and Joseph able to offer in ceremonial gratitude? Two small pigeons. Are pigeons enough to buy God from God? Of course not. They're a small sign of the gratitude of one young, poor couple for the goodness of God for them. What Mary and Joseph are truly surrendering to their overwhelmingly generous God in this story is their lives. The words of the prophet Simeon, when he sees Jesus, make that clear. Jesus' life will be incredible, something unheard of and unimaginable previously. And inevitably, that will affect Mary and Joseph. A soul will pierce your own soul, too. Their lives will never be the same. And agreeing to be Jesus' human parents and going through all the parental steps, like taking him to the temple, they were offering their whole lives to God. They're surrendering everything to God. And I want you to notice something. I'm using the word surrender, and I'm doing it very intentionally. Because surrender means loss. When an army surrenders, what does it mean? It means they've lost. When we surrender to God, we lose something. Mary and Joseph lost two pigeons. But more than that, they lost the life they would have had. The simpler, easier life. No swords to the souls in that life. Mary and Joseph lose something, something substantial, something precious even, when they surrender to God. But what do they gain? They gain God himself. Surrendering to God means losing something good, even something really good, in order to gain something even better. Following God's plan, living in obedience to him, drawing closer to him, ultimately the greatest good there is, God himself. So all of this leads me to a question this morning. What are you surrendering God, how are you actively recognizing and acting on the knowledge that everything you have, down to life itself and salvation, everything you have is from God? How are you stepping out in faith, surrendering to God and trust that he's going to take care of you, even if you're not sure how? Let's be clear. Unless you have very little to begin with, a small offering doesn't do that. A small offering is anything that doesn't really affect your life. And an offering that doesn't affect your life is really only a way to make yourself feel better. To make yourself feel like you're doing what you're supposed to. Like you're being obedient. Like you're being generous. 
When you have abundance, and by abundance I mean anything more than what you need, when you have abundance, a small offering doesn't take much trust. A small offering isn't surrender. And let's also be clear about what an offering is. Sounds like money. After all, we have an offering plate, right? And it can be money, but not necessarily. Surrendering is much more than that. King David wrote, My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. This sacrifice, this type of surrender, is so much more than just money. Because the real question is not, how much are you willing to give financially? And it's not, how can Grace Church make enough pledges to uh, meet our capital campaign goal? The real question is, how much of your life are you willing to entrust to God? How much have you surrendered to God? Mary and Joseph physically brought two pigeons, but that wasn't the real sacrifice. They had surrendered, and they were continuing to surrender their whole lives to God. What is God calling you to surrender today? Maybe it's the righteous anger you have towards someone who hurt you. You have every right to be angry, but that anger is turning to bitterness, and it's separating you from other people and from God. Maybe it's your right to control your own life. God has a better plan for you if you'll just follow him. Maybe it's a relationship you have, but that God is telling you to let go of. I don't know what the specifics of what God wants for each of you to surrender are, but I do know that there's one area in which he's calling all of us to surrender. As we enter and we prepare for the Vision 2020 process, it's a moment for surrender. As a church, we are giving everything to God, pledging to follow his lead, and trusting him with grace's future. But as individuals, you are called to surrender in that process. You're called to surrender your time, your prayers, your food, your comfort, and yes, perhaps your money down the road, in order to seek and follow God's will in this process. Ask yourself today, what role is God calling you to in this vision discernment process? Ask yourself, how is he calling you to be a part of grace's future? What is he calling you to lose in order to gain what he has planned for us, in order to draw closer to him? And if you aren't willing to surrender as much as you feel God calling you to, then you've just identified a place of sin in your life. And you need to address that and get right with God. And if you feel called and you are willing and this is the time to step into that call. Talk to me. Let's get you plugged in. Figure it out. Now, I've said again and again that surrender is loss. But how can I call you to lose something if I don't have skin in the game? If I haven't surrendered myself? So let me tell you about a time when I did surrender. I lost something. I lost something I cared about deeply in order to follow God. Hurt? And I'm willing to bet it's going to continue hurting. As many of you know, before I discerned the call to ministry, I studied counseling. I loved counseling. 
I love sitting with people and caring about them, hearing their, their deepest feelings and dreams and memories. It felt like such an honor. I wanted to be a counselor. When I began to discern the call to ministry, I felt like I was surrendering a lot of things, and I think I did. I felt some very keen and painful losses in that process. But I kept counseling. I considered whether or not I was called to give it up a few times. But most of the time, I just planned how I could hold on to that and do priestly ministry as well. In fact, when I interviewed at Grace, I decided before I came that if I couldn't keep doing counseling, it would be a deal breaker. And I'd just say, thanks, but no thanks, I'm good. I held on to counseling tighter and tighter. And then late last year, I had to face the truth. I needed to surrender it. I wasn't fully trusting God with my future, with my heart, with my hopes, with my life, as long as I insisted on keeping counseling. If I really wanted to follow God, if I really wanted to trust him, I had to lose something I loved deeply. Couldn't say I trusted God and also say some part of my life was non-negotiable. So I did it. And it hurt. After every final session with a client, I felt like crying. When I had my final clinical supervision session, the last piece of my counseling work, all I wanted to do was burrow deep into a blanket and disappear. But maybe my heart wouldn't hurt like that. What I'm trying to tell you here is that I surrendered, and it hurt deeply. I want to tell you one more thing, though. Before I stopped counseling, in many ways, the idea of surrendering it to God sounded like bondage to me. Bondage to ministry. Not that I don't love ministry, I do, but what if I change someday? What if I didn't like it in the future? I would have no safety net, no backup plan, stuck on one path, come what may. But now that I've surrendered, despite the pain, I've discovered it's actually freedom. Now I can stand before God undivided in a way that I couldn't before. Now I have really given my future the call he has placed on me. There's no plan B anymore. God is my safety net. I feel so much freer. When we surrender, we lose. We lose something good. To quote that great classic, The Princess Bride, anyone who says otherwise is selling something. When we surrender, we lose something good. But we're given the greatest thing, God himself. Mary and Joseph surrendered two pigeons and the life they could have had. And they gained Jesus. Grace Church, what are you called to surrender? again for listening. To find out more about what's going on here at Grace Church, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, our website, graceocala.org, or of course, on our campus here in sunny Ocala, Florida. Go in peace.